random encounter at a broadcasting facility. A shared interest and love of all things Marvel. Excelsior! A misinterpreted program title. And behold, a podcast is born. Peter Melnick. Podcaster and comic book enthusiast. And Eddie Wilson! Upstate New York radio announcer, still with an inordinate amount of catching up to do. Peter! What are you doing? Here we go with a new episode of The Marvelists. Welcome, everyone, to The Marvelists, the Marvel Universe podcast. I'm Peter Melnick, and Eddie Wilson is out on assignment over at the Coffee Bean. He's drinking a lot of espresso. He wants to do some taste tests and see how much he can shake from a massive amount of caffeine. Spoilers, it's three cups. Anyway... I am joined right now on the Zoom and String with next cosplay himself, Matt Dunford, the Dunf. Oh, thank you so much for having me here on The Marvelists. I've been uh, wanting to get on for the longest time, and looks like the stars finally aligned, and uh, I'm here on The Marvelists. And uh, I mean, not there, but you can hear me, so I'm technically here, here. Okay, yeah, here, here. Well, technically the stars have aligned because we're recording at nighttime, and it's a very... Uh, nice looking sky out i don't know i didn't look outside but i'm assuming there are stars out in the sky uh it over i'm in san diego so uh, it's still a nice little light sunset some like you know purple some oranges and stuff like that it was a kind of a cloudy day but uh, you know things are brightening up right at sunset so one of the things about you that i've known over the years of knowing you is you're a big spider hyphen fan and i gotta say like this again this has been long overdue and with myself going through spider-man through all the different decades as of this recording i'm at the tail end of 1996 going through the clone saga it's still going it's still going it's still going and and as i am a staunch clone saga defender and i'm still a guy who you know really really loves the clone saga and i you know i think people just didn't give it a chance when it came out i was a you know pretty much a nine-year-old boy when the clone saga was in full swing and of course, I'd only been reading Spider-Man for a couple of years at the time, so I didn't have the emotional attachment to Peter Parker that everyone did. So I kind of welcomed in Ben Riley with with open arms, and I found him to be just as heroic as Peter. Well, one of the things that I feel, and I we discussed this, I don't know if it was during the episode or off mic with Joe St. Pierre, but one of the things that I pointed out is a lot of the old heads in the realm of Star Wars, for example, everyone vehemently hated Jar Jar Binks. Every single time you would talk about the character, I hate Jar Jar, I hate Jar Jar. And that's because those older voices were the most loud and vocal. And as you know, the decades have gone on, there's been more and more of a quote unquote appreciation of that character. And I've noticed it's, you know, a lot of kids that were growing up that did in fact like the character, they revisit, they're like, yeah, I actually do like him. And I feel like that's the same exact thing with the Clone Saga. And it's, you know, I'm not saying the Clone Saga is the Jar Jar Binks of comics. No, no. But no, nothing will nothing will ever be as good as Jar Jar Binks. That's absolutely. Just I mean, I I'll be completely honest. The day I saw Jar Jar Binks Black Series figure sitting in Ollie's by me, that was an instantaneous purchase. And I'm not kidding. <laughs> but I digress. Uh in regards to, you know, the Clone Saga, there's a lot of appreciation for that era of Spider-Man. And I understand that. And for the most part, I like it because there's a lot of creative teams that I'm reading through this. And, you know, as I said in our interview with Joe, that's going to be coming up real soon or before this episode drops, I haven't figured it out yet. I choose my own adventure. Uh, In regards to the creative teams, it's 
damn fine people that are working on the title. You got people like Joe, you got people like Sal Buscema, you got writers like Todd DeZago, you have who else? You have uh, Michael. Well, the Spider-Man, yeah, it's like the uh, the Spider-Man brain trust at the time was you know going through a rotation of things. So in January of 96, when uh, Ben Riley was assuming the mantle of Spider-Man, uh, sending from Scarlet Spider, you know, you had the launch of Sensational Spider-Man. And so you had the DeZago and uh, Ringo team on Spider-Man, just Spider-Man, you um, had, uh, what was it? It was, uh, was it Demetrius and uh, Ramita Jr. on it? You had, you know, the Mark Bagley, Tom DeFalco team, and on Spectacular, oh no, Spectacular was uh, Demetrius and um, on Sal Buscema, it was Howard Mackey on Spider-Man with, uh, with, with Ramita. And so these were very talented creative teams, and I enjoyed the hell out of them. You know, you had sometimes like, you know, Bill Sienkiewicz inks over Sal Buscema, uh, you know, great Scott Hanna inks over uh, Ramita. And I I just had just nothing but a fondness for this particular time. And um, I'm absolutely uh, just over the moon about uh, a lot of this stuff that happened right there, because I mean, I still remember it so fondly of Ben becoming Spider-Man after, you know, going through a year of uh of Clone Saga stuff with the Scarlet Spider, and I was I welcomed it in. I still think that the Dan Jurgens uh, Spider-Man costume is still one of the greatest, uh, you know, character redesigns there ever. I mean, there's not there's, there's nothing wrong with Spider-Man's costume, but I mean, I still think it's a solid, wonderful design that does you know pay tribute to the character, and it's still sl very sleek and really cool. And you know, I still remember e picking up each issue what I was doing in life at the time. I still um, my favorite Clone Saga arc, of course, because uh, I am a child of the 90s. I love symbiotes. So the Spider Carnage Saga, which uh, which was Web of Carnage, started in February of 1996. I still remember picking up my first issue of that at the uh, at the San Diego Quarterly Con. It was my first non-San Diego Comic-Con convention. I didn't know they offered conventions other than San Diego Comic-Con. So I got to go to this small one to pick up the, those uh, the first issue there. And so that was just so cool to see. It's so funny that you mentioned, by the way, I didn't know any other conventions other than San Diego. Like, that's such a cool thing because, like, on our end, you know, over here, we didn't have New York Comic Con until, you know, the uh, mid to uh, late aughts. So, you know, we finally have our own show, and there's a generation of, you know, mini dunks. You didn't have, yeah, so you didn't have, uh, didn't you guys have Mike Carbonaro's Big Apple Con? Oh, I love I love Mike Carbonero's Big Apple Comic Con. Yeah, yeah, I met Carbonero at a, at a, he came out to a little one day show here and he's like, you know, dressed all rock star. She's like, you, you got possessed. You got this. What's this thing you're promoting? Comic Fest? It sounds great. You ought to work for me. You ought to work for me. And I'm like, and I, and I start mentioning all these like New York names because I can tell he's a New Yorker. He's like, oh, I know him. I know him. And it's like all those New York folks. And so I think that was, you know, a cool time to see, but it's just, you know, each their own. It's like, you know, you've got the Big Apple show, you've got America's Finest City. So there's different strengths of different conventions. But um, speaking to my addiction of a, a clone saga guy, like I, I recently decided, you know what, I want a piece, I want the character that I've always wanted drawn by Mark Bagley. So a couple of weeks ago at the amazing Las Vegas Comic Con, I actually commissioned Mark Bagley to draw me spider carnage the character that i think is the best character that he's ever done and cool i was like looking at it and it's just like oh my god i can't believe it he drew it for me he drew it for me and then i asked him 
Mark, could I ask for one little revision on it? Sure. It's like, <laughs> what's wrong? It's like, and I said, this comes from, and I told him, and he's, he's there with his wife. And like, you know, I made such a big deal about being a kid that just read this Web of Carnage saga over and over and over. I said, the little tendril that's coming off his head, do you notice how you have web pattern on it? Symbiotes don't have tendrils and they um, ultimately don't do uh, cloth. Uh, they don't mimic cloth patterns because they uh, basically fall off the body and decay. And so could you black this out for me? He's like, kid, I've been to the character. Yeah, but it's, it's, that's, not, that's how they were. It's like, okay, fine. He, he calls it. It's like, okay, now it's perfect. Now it's perfect. That's tremendous. Yeah. I love again. I love and I I love Bagley. Like I've had nothing but good things to say about him. Um, when we interviewed him years and years ago at a uh, East Coast Comic Con, RIPD. I miss that show more than anything. Mm-hmm. Uh, I sat with him doing an interview, and some children were walking by, and you know they were very awkward, very you know shy and nervous. And he looks at them and goes, "Oh, you like my prints?" And he go, they go, "Yeah." And he goes, "Which one's your favorite?" And they, you know, point to the one they like, and he hands it to them. And I'm just like, you know, he, they ask, are you going to charge? He's like, no, that's yours. And it was this, it was the sweetest little gesture because he didn't have to do that. And, you know, it's, it's the little things that win me over like that, you know, like, again, the convention circuit is such a unique thing. Like I'm, I love it for the whole family dynamic of it because there's so many people that you know you run into over the years at these conventions like you know on your end of the west coast i would imagine there's people that you see at pretty much every single show am i right yep there's people i see more commonly at shows than you know i do my own family yeah and like you know for me one guy and he's done shows on your end he's done shows in the midwest he's done primarily shows in the tri-state area over here is uh ruben miranda i i would not be shocked if you have not met ruben to be completely honest but you know, Ruben is one of my absolute. Truth favorite. be told, I actually, I can't say that I have met Ruben Miranda. I got to keep an eye out for him next time I go to a con. He's such a nice guy, and like, you know, what won me over was I was, you know, at New York Comic Con. There's a vendor there who always sells half off trades. Like, I guess you know they buy the trades over stock from Forbidden Planet, and nine times out of ten, it's books that literally, you know, paperbacks that have just come out within that you know month or within even a week. And I remember buying from him Roots of the Swamp thing. And it's, you know, the uh, Bernie Wrights and Len Wein uh, run. And he opens the book and he starts reading it to me in a posh English accent, trying to be like Alan Moore. And in the back of my mind, I'm thinking to myself, that's, you know, Alan Moore didn't work on those. You know, Alan Moore is, you know, uh, what's it called? Saga of the Swamp thing. But but I digress, whatever. And, you know, I brought it up to him and he laughed about it. He's like, yeah. But when I think of Swampy, I always think of, you know, Alan Moore. And it's like, yeah, that makes perfect sense. But like, it's that little level of uh, the personalities you meet at these shows. Because again, you mentioned Carbo and like, oh, you know, I have so many stories of, you know, talking with uh, and encountering Carbo over the years too. And it's like, you realize, again, it's a small community, but it's also such a big one too, you know? Yeah, I, I, I can see that. So, like, I'm just, uh, you know, I'm open for, for, like, doing all these things and just meeting people because we all have a share a, a similar love of stuff. So I always just say at comic conventions, there's always an, such an overlap of people who are into, uh, you know, not just comic books, but, you know, cartoons, comedy, that sort of stuff. It's just, um, it's it's kind of a kind of a 
you know, just the whole mentality of things. And we just love it. And so I love crossing over with these people and meeting all these people. And people are just saying to me, it's like, wait, how do you know Matt Dunford? It's like, oh, I know him from comics or Pokemon or cosplay. And so it, it just, you wear your, you wear your geek, you wear your geek flag very proudly and you make yourself a beacon of showing off this stuff. And I love it. And it's funny because, you know, one of the things, obviously I associate with Spider-Man 110%. However, with Spider-Man, the thing I associate you the absolute most is Spider-Man, the animated series. And, you know, growing up as a kid of the 90s, like, I absolutely loved that. And, you know, for crying out loud, like, how big of a fan are you? You're literally friends with the friggin' showrunner. So it's kind of one of those things, like, damn, that's cool. Like, imagine being that kid, like, I know the guy who's making that thing. Wait, what? Yeah, and it's it's kind of like... uh you know this this weird thing where it's like if you go on the spider-man animated wiki there's an there's 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 a page dedicated to me matt dunford is pretty much known as the world's biggest fan of spider-man the animated series i'm like wow that is actually really cool and you know i even have this 3d printed gold statue bust of peter parker uh that was made by showrunner john semper that says to the Sp to spider-man animated series number one fan matt dunford and i'm like oh that is just so touching and i've been a spider-man animated series fan since its debut on november 19th 1994 because i remember the day that it came out that's the where they debuted the first episode night of the lizard and that was a preview episode uh the main show would get started on february of 1995 and it, it's so nice to meet john semper and to work with him and you know i i when I was still back as a volunteer, uh, you know, for San Diego Comic Fest before I became the chairman, I asked the uh, directors if I could invite one person to be uh, a special guest at San Diego Comic Fest, and that was John Semper. And I'd like to say it's it's been all downhill from there, <laughs> my personal uh, fanboy days. But you know, John was the perfect guest, and he would tell these great stories and let me enter. I would get to interview him on these panels, and so he would say, like, "So, John, what was your reaction to?" Uh, like you know the, uh, november 19th 1994 with that like in the debut of seeing spider-man on screen for the first time he's like matt i was asleep that morning you don't realize how hard i had to work just to get that out the door the first showrunner had had uh you know been brought on board and then six months later he was kicked out and then stan lee called me to help out and so i had to put together a show in eight months from something like january uh, you know, before like October or something, he he had lost all the lead time it takes. So he, John Semper had to rush, rush, rush to get an episode of an animated series out the door before Christmas time so they could sell action figures. Because if they didn't have a, a TV show to promote action figures of, it, it was going to be all for naught and you miss out on a holiday season shopping. But fortunately for me, I did witness Spider-Man the Animated Series uh, on November 19th, and I begged my mom to take me to these, the, to Toys R Us that day, where I got Web Shooter Spider-Man and the Kingpin, and I still have them on my desk right now, on my Spider-Man shrine to this day. My first two Spider-Man series, <laughs> animated series action figures are still with me to this day. And it's funny, too, because, you know, I love those, uh, the Toy Biz figures, absolutely, and, like, it's kind of cool too because like you'll see they even go as far as to include like little pins and stuff like that and it's you know that's the first morbius action figure sorry dr michael morbius 
Yes, Dr. Michael Morbius with his switching face. I think it's so cool to see that they would go out and, you know, take all of these really neat characters that, you know, the hardcore comic geeks knew very well and go off and make them into household names, kind of. Yeah, you know? it's, 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 it is a thing because John, in his research with his writer's room, he had very few demands from Marvel, but one of the few ones that he did have was just a copy of every single Spider-Man book that was printed. He needed to do his research. He couldn't just come up with stuff off the top of his head. He needed to base it in the reality of the comics, and that's what was inspiring him to do all this stuff. And it's, it's so cool um, because, you know, you cut your teeth on what you're kind of reading at the time. I, I started reading Spider-Man comics in 1992 um, with, uh, you know, my first batch of stuff. So it was Demetis and DeFalco and the, the Spider-Man brain trust of the time. And that stuff is, you know, contemporary, but, you know, the whole thing is just when the Spider-Man cartoon came out, Ben Riley was Spider-Man. So it's like, you know, you, you got used to Peter was the Spider-Man, the cartoons, Ben was the Spider-Man of the comics. And so that I thought was the cool balance that I enjoyed things for me. So it's like I had my fix of Peter Parker. I had my fix of Ben Riley, But I could see how that could be upsetting for certain Spider fans to be reading comics and be like, who's Ben Riley?" And, you know, you, you do see the influence that Semper was doing at the time. He you know, may not have been reading a whole lot of the, you know, Clone Saga stuff. But you could tell that he was definitely taking a lot of uh, influence primarily from John Romita Sr. So that's where the show gets the look from, very obvious. But a lot of the deep-seated writing at the time may, may not have been so heavy-handed with the Stan Lee and uh, Ditko era. But it's very heavy in the Roger Stern era of Spider-Man. That era is really drawing a lot of influence and things. And it's funny, too, because you look at that era of Spider-Man, like the, you know, the 1990s, again, going back over to the uh, Toy Biz figures and whatnot, how cool is it to see nowadays that, you know, Hasbro will do with their Marvel Legends line, the retro figures, and go as far as to include the exact kind of packaging from the Toy Biz era in these new figures? It's, it's a blessing and a curse because I will buy anything with that purple city sky backdrop. I'm looking over my Spider-Man shrine. There's the Spider-Man bendable toy toothbrush. There's the Spider-Man toothbrush with the mouth cup. There's the Spider-Man play putty. There's the Spider-Man plush doll. There's the Spider-Man playing cards. All 10 of the Spider-Man VHS tapes. All 10 of the UK Spider-Man VHS tapes. The Web of Steel action figures. Um, I, I, I have the Spider-Man animated series Happy Meal display from 1995. People have offered me like $2,000 for that. It's like, no, it's it's mine. I'm not saying I have the I have the Barbie style Mary Jane. I have the, the Ken style Ben Riley and Peter Parker. I have got the Venom Saga collector's edition set, the Spider and the Scarecrow. Scarecrow wasn't even on the show. And I... I I have misprint action figures of the uh, original 94 line, but the, the new line coming out, the first lineup, they were, they had the background packaging, but they weren't inspired primarily by the TV show. But now the ones we're getting right now, we're getting like TV show Aunt May, we're getting TV show Norman Osborn, we're getting TV show like, you know, cell shaded style Spider-Man. We are getting the stuff that has the look of the, t of the TV show and it's awesome. And like the Spider-Man busts even, you know, capture the show even better. And I just wish they were a little bigger, but they're really awesome to have. And, you know, I'll buy anything Spider-Man animated series because I think it's the best, not 
just my favorite cartoon of all time. I just think it's the best depiction of Spider-Man ever made. And it's funny you mentioned that uh, the Mary Jane doll, the uh, Barbie style one. Is that a hard one to find? Because a few years ago, there was this uh, wholesale liquidator store by me near uh, Poughkeepsie, New York. And they had a whole wall of Toy Biz figures still. And they were charging, and I swear to God, this was like maybe 2017, 2018, $3 a figure. And it was stuff like, it was it was jobber figures, you know, lesser ones. Like you, they had a Gen X, uh, what's her name? Gen X Jubilee. There were like random villains from the Ghost Rider lineup, which in my opinion, have some of the coolest card backs of all time. Uh, and then just randomly sitting in one spot was that Barbie style Mary Jane. I'm not sure the rarity of that particular one. I hasn't, I don't really look on eBay for this sort of stuff. I mean, I kind of just, you know, pick up everything as our, like as an adult now, I'm actually going back and getting all these Spider-Man animated series stuff that I didn't get as a kid because I would just, you know, take open, take my stuff and just rip it open. And now I have like the carded stuff. So I've got a, like a still sealed daily bugle playset and a tri spider slayer still in the case. And it's cool to look at the stuff here and, you know, admire it because I realize I do absolutely love that purple background because it was the ultimate selling point for me. I would go, you know, go to Toys R Us and, you know, I'd say, mom, I need this Spider-Man. I need you already had this one. No, he's making the spider thwip with that hand. He's making a fist with this one. Well, let me ask you, you've been to New York City, am I correct? I have. Be honest. The first time you ever went there, did you think of Spider-Man? I did. The first did time you... I saw, I went to, I very much thought of Spider-Man and kind of looked around and saw the whole sights to see. I will say that the uh, animation team did very good uh, research about bringing out the best of a New York look to Spider-Man for what they could do. Because I know they wanted to be very... Uh, I know they wanted to really showcase New York City as the environment there. So I think they're respectful to Queens and all that. I think my dad had my dad went was in Queens for a while. My dad actually went to uh, to Columbia for medical school or as they call it, Empire State University. Every time I see that name in the Spider-Man comics, by the way, I always laugh really hard at that. Yeah, it, it's it's Columbia. It's Columbia. We all know it's Columbia. And it's funny because in regards to uh you know, again, because I'm, I'm a toy boy uh, in regards to the uh, toy biz figures. I love going over to uh, Pandora's box in lovely Lafayette, New Jersey, and seeing the 90s card backs like they have a wall full of all of these different toys and they're all intermixed into each other. So you'll see like Marvel Legends and then toy biz Marvel Legends. You'll see the uh, they, they're like random figure lines that I haven't thought of in decades, random Hercules figures, random Conan the Barbarian ones. And again, I feel like the ones, though, that stand out the most are those, you know, the Toy Biz figures. And I feel like the they are 100 uh, percent package designing 101 because they do such a phenomenal job of attracting the eye. And you look at modern figures nowadays and it's not trying to be like, you know, old man on a soapbox going kids these days. But like you look at the the packaging for some of this stuff now. And usually it's very unsuccessful. Like I'm a big Star Wars fan and I'll go every once in a while into the Black Series. But the boxes are so damn boring. But then you yeah, see the it, retro card backs and those are the ones like, oh, I like those. Yeah, I, I think the retro card backs were what they were doing with like, you know, like the Ghost Rider show never came to fruition. But I bought Ghost Rider toys back in the day because like I just thought the 
backgrounds were cool and it's like you know okay let's flip the fires different ways for it and um I, I think the the retro backings it's it's very much a, if it ain't broke don't fix it so a lot of those x-men toys spider-man toys they are incredibly eye-catching even as display pieces but you know they're you know 22 dollars now as opposed to six dollars where they were back in the day and i look at star wars black series i mean i collected star wars figures back in the 90s as well um you know, I, I went through my Sp Star Wars phase, my Spider-Man phase, and um, pretty much it all dried up in early 1999 when Pokemon cards started coming out. It's like, you know, my, 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 my parents' storage unit, it's like, here's your Lego phase, your G.I. Joe, and then it all stops in 1999 when Pokemon comes out. And so that's just how it was. But I look at like Star Wars Black series, it's like, you know, I, I do agree that the, the toys are cool, but the packaging and just that solid black, it, it, it it's nothing special. Some yeah. of their retro stuff, like, oh, the Crimson Empire, the Dark Empire series, so like, you know, where they have, like, you know, the comic book nods. Those are cooler. I got a couple of those. And, like, they're, you know, just return to Power of the Force. Here's the, like, 1999 uh, episode one Jar Jar toy. It's like, oh, yeah, he's cool. Once again, it's because nothing is cooler than Jar Jar. 100%. And, you know, you mentioned the Star Wars figures with Power of the Force. Power of the Forest is like one of the very first things that I think of when it comes to uh, figure packaging design. And yeah. like in my brain, the green lightsaber cover or the green uh, lightsaber card back is what is burned into my brain. And, you know, obviously there's the red lightsaber from the early 1995 one. The, the green one was just so much cooler. Yeah, 100%. And like, I feel like it was smarter to do green because, yes, you see the red but you're thinking of the villains the entire time. Yeah, it's and, it, it's just Gen 1 was, you know, it's like, cool, they're, they're doing these again. But the green ones, those were like, oh, we had to rush to get those. And so, like, oh, yeah, Kenner, Kenner knew what they were doing. I also always think of the uh, purple ones for the Shadows of the Force uh, or Shadows of the Empire. Uh, yeah, because, I mean, it's like, oh, my God. I was like, I could not believe this. Again. They're actually making Dark Empire Palpatine. And they're making the Imperial God. They're making stuff from the comics and the expanded universe. And I thought that was just so cool. And it's funny because, you know, as someone who, you know, every once in a while will go through the uh, Star Wars EU it, or Legends, whatever we're calling it this week. Um, it's it's cool to see those figures, you know, embrace such a unique era of Star Wars, because when you see those, you know exactly what time frame that's trying to be like Star Wars, you know, supplementary supplementary material is primarily a product of the mid to late 90s it, it is and you know i remember first time my first time seeing star wars in 1995 at a at a at a party uh at a birthday party uh birthday parties in the 90s it was a birthday party for one of my older brother's friends but you know how parents are they like to unload all the kids at the birthday party so they can just all get out at once and so we had to do the whole thing of um i remember actually watching <laughs> uh the spider-man episode sting of the scorpion that day so like i remember what i did before i had to go through because all things relate back to spider-man um and then later on i you know what star wars for the first time because like i had to be put in a basement where my older brother's friends all had the super nintendo and the sega genesis there and there were three tvs set up so they had the one set up for the genesis one for the um for the super nintendo and another one just had a VHS hooked up to it. And so the little brothers are like, hey, can we play Super Nintendo? No. Can we play Genesis? No, because all the older kids were hogging it. And we're like, well, what can we do? Well, we could watch a movie. So all the little brothers decided to put on this movie that we found called Star Wars. And all of a sudden, 
all of the kids were crowding around watching Star Wars pretty quickly. And, and that's kind of like where our obsession began. Right. Mm-hmm. And it's, it's funny, too, you know, and you, you mentioned the Super Nintendo. I'd be remiss if we don't talk about, you know, that era of how important Spider-Man was on that system, even. Yeah, you know, on Maximum Carnage. I mean, it came out, uh, you know, I still remember getting a copy of Maximum Carnage for uh, my uh, my birthday in 1994 with that, you know, bright red cartridge. And it was just so, so awesome. And, you know, I'd be remiss if we don't talk about it. Uh, briefly mention, if you want to check out in the Marvelous Archive, we have two interviews back to back in regards to uh, Maximum Carnage, one with Mark Flitman, who is the pr- uh, producer of the game, as well as the lead singer of the band Green Jello. So we're talking the, about all elements the, of that game. The, the the weirdest thing is like there was this guy at like a comic fest volunteers meeting and uh, he was just like, hey, uh, I'm here to help uh, my friend Robert. He's cool by day. I you know play in a band. I was like, oh, cool. What's your band? Uh, Green Jelly. I'm like, oh, my God, you did Carnage Rules. And I freaked the hell out because I didn't know that, you know, Green Jelly was, uh, you know, had primarily members here in San Diego. And I was just like, oh, my God, it's like, you know, Carnage Rules was my jam. It's like. So, yeah, it, it's cool that I did get to meet a guy from Green Jelly, of all things, a San Diego Comic Fest volunteers meeting. It's so funny because, again, those games hold up phenomenally well. Like, they are, you know, a masterclass in terms of a beat-em-up kind of game. Yeah. You know, the game mechanics are, you know, it's funny because the distinguished competition, <laughs> they have the uh, death and return of Superman, but it's no maximum carnage. Yeah, and then, of course, you go into, like, stuff like, separation anxiety and that was just a what a very much a watered down maximum carnage i wasn't as thrilled with separation anxiety as i was with maximum carnage and then they i think every kid who ever played maximum carnage will always have the same complaint about maximum carnage whereas they look at the box art and there's a level where it's inside the head of the statue of liberty and we all played the game i'm like where's that level where's that level it's not in the game I'm wondering if that's, you know, because again, I'm a sucker for lost media. I'm wondering if the uh, there's a prototype ROM with that level in it. Yeah, it's just like, man, it's just like, it's just like we thought, is it a secret level? We're checking like, you know, Game Pro and Nintendo Power and all this stuff to see like, how do we unlock that level? So like, it, but it just never happened. I miss those days. Like the idea of, you know, getting a gaming magazine and finding out all of that information that, you know, you might not otherwise get any other way. Like, I remember back in the day, you know, getting mm-hmm. a copy of, I think it was, it wasn't Game Pro. I think it was Electronic Gaming Monthly. And it was on the cover, Star Wars Masters of Terra Kasai, which is one of oh, the- Oh, Masters of Terra Kasai sucked. Oh, it's one uh, of the worst I, games. No, no. I, and and it, it it was such a disappointment because the, sim- the simple truth is that LucasArts was firing on all cylinders in the mid to late 90s. It's like they weren't coming out with bad games. And it was it was almost at the point where I was like, you know, I wanted to play games that they were making that weren't Star Wars. So that led me into like Monkey Island and Sam and Max and, you know, the other adventure games. And but particularly you. the, The mid 90s was this wonderful era of Star Wars where you had to really dig star wars for more knowledge it was it was pre-clone saga and we were all trying to figure out okay how did darth vader come into existence how did the emperor rose to power and so like they gave you little hints in the movies but we dug through every source book and guidebook and video game and all this stuff and it was all great 
I loved all the comics and all the novels and, and especially all the LucasArts video games. I mean, stuff like TIE Fighter and Dark Forces were great. Um, it's just, you know, you, you couldn't get bad content. And then, you know, in the winter of 1997, uh, Star Wars, uh, uh, I would, Dark Forces 2 Jedi Knight came out, which was, you know, chef's kiss of like the Star Wars first person shooter. But then this highly anticipated Star Wars fighting game called Masters of Terrace Kasi came out and I played it and it was clunky. It was boring. It was it had this like horrible tournament structure where the more characters you unlocked would be added to the tournament. So you had to play the tournament first when it had few characters because it's like you couldn't regenerate health and you had to like play perfectly in order to unlock it. I did not like Masters of Terrace Kasi. And the only thing I will give it credit for is it had a very cute save button icon when you went into the save thing. The Yoda with the, uh, you know, bouncing boxing gloves, Yoda ready to square up. But you couldn't play as Yoda. Man, that, what gives, man? Well, funniest thing, by the way, it all ties back to Spider-Man. You didn't refer to it as the Clone Wars era. You referred to it as the Clone Saga. So once again, Spider-Man rules all. Yeah. But it's funny because I remember uh, I one of the very few times I've traded in a video game. I traded in Mega Man, I think, 8, Star Wars Masters of Terrace, whatever, however you pronounce it, There's and Simpsons Wrestling. And they were all like, I'm not really much of a Mega Man fan. So, you know, my. Uh... No, I, I, I'm not either. I tried Mega Man 8 because my thing is my Mega Man journey is I tried playing the original Mega Man games for Nintendo. I wasn't as thrilled with them as I was with Mario games and other games, but it was Mega Man X for Super Nintendo that stepped it up. I love Mega yeah. Man X. The Mega Man X games were cool. And I'm like, OK, I'll give regular Mega Man a chance again with Mega Man 8. It was boring. I mean, it was, the... it was nothing special. My only regret about trading that game in is the fact that there's the uh, really bad voiceovers for the uh, animated uh, segments, including literally a part with the person playing Dr. Wily who stumbles and stutters his lines, and they include those lines. And it's like, wow, that was yeah. the best take you could have gotten. Yeah, so whatevs, but, you know, they still got it. Okay, so whatever, now we'll do it live. <laughs> We'll do it live. Yep. Now, in regards to Spider-Man, once again, what else can be said about, you know, this character? Like you look at Spider-Man in regards to the, you know, the motion pictures, like there's so many different iterations. And I feel like for myself, you know, I've I've actually never had this conversation with you. But in regards to the film version, I still say for myself, Tom Holland is the best interpretation because he's a good best of both worlds. Well, I mean, I would still argue for christopher daniel barnes but that's just Ooh, me but time. if we're just only yeah but uh, you know we're still if we're going for films it's like i still prefer the raimi films and you know i'm one of the guys that doesn't really knock spider-man 3 i understand what it is it, it can be comedic it can be funny and i know there's a lot of like studio control with it of like you know too many cooks spoil the pot it's like can spoil the stew or whatever and then Raimi, you know, he wasn't comfortable with, you know, working on Venom, but the studio wanted to shoehorn Venom in because, you know, he's, he's the most popular Spider-Man villain. So, but, you know, I, I've, you know, I still have nothing but love for the Raimi trilogy. And I think, you know, Spider-Man 2 is the best of the bunch. And I think it, is, it ultimately is a perfect movie. And, you know, people 
you know, can say what they want of Toby Maguire as the world's oldest high schooler, you know, whatever. I think he's still a he was still a good Spider-Man. In the interest of fairness, with him being, you know, a high schooler in those movies, they jettison through them fast. So it's like, hey, he's a high schooler for five seconds onto, you know, him being an adult. Like they do it like that. And I appreciate that. Because, yeah, because I, I I do not like this fascination of constantly taking Peter Parker back to high school. I don't get it. It's like you know, he was only in high school for a handful of issues in the like Lee Ditko era, and like you know, and then he was into college. I like a college era Peter. That's what he. That's where he works best for me. And it's funny too because you look at that era of Spider Man, the Lee Ditko stuff, and. It is damn fine looking comics like there there are moments, though, where, you know, it can be a bit clunky, but that, you know, is the usual kind of thing with Stan's writing. Like, I love Stan, but like there are moments where it's just like, oh, Stan, honey, uh, just, just rein it in just a little bit, you know, mm-hmm. like I think it's one of my favorite things in regards to, you know, because we do on our uh, Patreon over at Patreon.com slash The Marvelists, we do a little segment called uh Fantastic Voyage, where we read issue by issue of Stanley and Jack Kirby's Fantastic Four. And one of my biggest things is it's an arrow when Stan is like trying to shoehorn in dialogue for every single character in a page. Like even a guy like yeah. walking by, you know, walking his dog, he's like, oh shit, it's Galactus. Yeah. Stan Stanley dialogue is very much a product of its time. It's got its perks. And I think, you know, it's it's I think it's something just that yeah, you can you know, have a sense of humor about in this day and age. You just like look at us, look at an action scene that Kirby drew. It's like, and Stan comes in with his Marvel method. It's like, oh no, an explosion. No time to uh, jump out of the way. Just time to talk about it. Yeah. And it's funny too, because there's that one issue of Captain America, 112, the uh, album issue where it's, you know, him fighting everybody. And I'm pretty sure like Stan is just looking at that issue like, I can't really do anything, True Believer. I guess I'm just going to have to leave it the way it is and maybe put one or two word balloons in it. Enough said. Because literally, that's enough said. Because look how much action is in this. Yeah, and sometimes, you know, the less is more. I'd love to see uh, if, you know, Stan had a chance, uh, Stan to do a uh, dialogue for Larry Hama's great silent interlude. Oh, God. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um. Oh, I'm crawling down a wall. Yep, yep, yep. Have a wonderful day. I'm, what's my name, Snake Eyes? Sure. Yeah. So, you know, it, it could also be, it could always be something like that. But, you know, I there is so much Spider-Man out there that I love. You know, um, some of the favorite stuff that comes to mind, people will often ask me, what, what do you think, what's your favorite Spider-Man comic run? And I actually, actually you know, will say it's the Straczynski run with uh, John Romita Jr. That is my favorite. So, like, as I'm going through the Clone Saga stuff, 1996, I'm uh-huh. patiently waiting. I'm waiting with bated breath for 2001 because, like, that when I read those issues initially, my God, is it some good stuff. That is the same reaction that I had because, you know, I started reading Spider-Man in 1992. I was a six-year-old boy who I basically my passion at the time was uh, I was I loved everything pirates. And so I collected Lego pirate toys and my mom got me a set that uh, had a a lego pirate comic in it and i thought it was so cool that these pirates suddenly had a story and i would make my parents read me the comic every single day read it again read it again read it again until they finally just sat me down and got me hooked on phonics so they could get me to read this comic and i learned to read off of that comic and then 
my dad thought it would be okay well he's reading now let's go him to Toys R Us and get him some children's books and so he took me through the halls of a Toys R Us and I see the most beautiful thing that I'd ever seen in my entire life and it was this shiny holographic cover of Spider-Man and it was the 30th anniversary of Spider-Man that year and I, I, I just was like, I, I, I need this. I need this. And it was a set of 30 Spider-Man comics uh, all in there. And the cover issue was uh, Spectacular Spider-Man 189. And that was the issue where Harry Osborn kidnapped his own family to bring Peter over for uh, a dinner so they could all have like, you know, his whole psychobabble and whatnot. And what I got from this is that was my introduction, you know, very much to Spider-Man and to the Green Goblin. You see that Spider-Man is a hero. This Green Goblin guy is kind of a chump and kind of living in the living vicariously, not being able to live up through his dad. So I never took goblins seriously at the time. But boy, did I take symbiotes seriously at the time. Symbiotes were cool. And, you know, I read Spider-Man from 1992, uh, you know, just up through 2001. And the thing about it is like I I love Spider-Man, love Spider-Man. But then you get to the spot in the late 90s where I don't really love Spider-Man anymore. And it's almost at a point where like I'm considering not even reading Spider-Man anymore because Spider-Man really needed a shot in the arm in that particular era, if anyone knows what I'm referring to. And I mean, I couldn't even enjoy the Spider-Man com, uh, the Spider-Man cartoon because Spider-Man Unlimited was on. And the, the thing is when Spider-Man Unlimited came on in 1999, it was on the same Saturday morning time slot as Pokemon. And this is, this is height of Pokemania. And you're making me choose between spider-man and pokemon and i ultimately chose pokemon it's like i was spending more money on pokemon card packs and you know enjoying pokemon more than i was spider-man and i'd been raised on spider-man and it was kind of just this weird thing but spider-man got the shot in the arm that he needed in 2001 and it was amazing spider-man volume 2 number 30 where spider-man's kind of just doing his web slinging web slinging and meets this stranger named ezekiel who all of a sudden says Hey, Peter, you ever think that uh, you might be something more? You ever think that your, uh, you know, spider bite was more than just an accident? You're a spider and you're always fighting all these other animals. You ever think you might be part of a bigger picture? And that gets Peter thinking and almost like, oh, my God. And then I get more into the deeper into the Straczynski run. And I, I loved you know, like what he was doing and that how he grounded it in reality. And like the first shakeup that he did is make Peter a high school teacher. And I'm like, that's that, back at. Midtown, Midtown High, and it's like I thought that was perfect for it, because you know Peter Parker, you know to, you know at, at at this point canonically he'd be about twenty seven or twenty eight years old, and I mean you're still doing the same job you're doing when you're a teenager. It, it it made sense for him to do something like that to settle down and get an actual job instead of being a freelancer. I mean the guy has a chemistry degree for God's sake. And it's funny too because again you know going over that era, I love the fact that they have the John Romita Jr. art on there. Yeah, and, and yeah, I'll go on, go on. I was going to say, like, Ramita Jr. can be like such a quote unquote hot button topic for a lot of comic fans out there. But to be completely honest, pardon my language, those fans can go fuck themselves because I, I absolutely love John's work. And there's something about that level of how he does what he does. There's. Yeah, it, it's 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 weird because when I, I first started reading Spider-Man comics in the 90s, I just saw okay he's the ugly square guy but the more i read him the more i started to love him and enjoy his work and it's like and nowadays i'll you know just pick up books just because romita is on them even if it's 
the Frank Miller Superman. Which, bless their hearts, they tried on that one. And it's not Southern, bless their heart. It's just a regular bless their heart. They did try. I'll I'll, I'll just leave it at that. Yeah. So anyway, but the thing about Spider-Man getting the shot in the arm that he needed, you, you do realize that Marvel was in a not so good spot in the late 1990s. And so they needed the the turnaround. And so that's where they bring in Joe Quesada. And Joe Quesada brings in, you know, he may have made a few enemies by getting rid of certain talent that was on books at the time. And then he brought in Axel Alonso to oversee the Spider-Man titles, bringing over Axel Alonso from Vertigo. And it's just, uh, it's like, all right, Mr. Mackey, you are gone. Mr. Byrne, you're gone. It's like, you know, it's, um, wait, wait, Ramita, you can stay. You can stay. And ultimately you do, you know, you see, because there's nothing wrong with Ramita art. Ramita is the Spider-Man artist. When people say, who's the, who's your favorite Spider-Man artist, Ditko or Ramita? I say Ramita Jr. Really? Yeah. So even more so than Ramita Sr. Wow. I'm a Ramita Jr. guy. And, you know, and, you know, back to the story at hand, Straczynski's run on Spider-Man was just so so it it really engrossed me and you know just acting Moreland you know he was a new villain and he was you know kind of Morbius-ish but like you know it's like okay he I can see the threat that he's presenting there and that Peter you know coming through and saying it's like I don't care what this Ezekiel guy says I'm just a, you know I'm a bastard child of radio of you know of a radioactive spider bite I can just poison myself and beat Moreland so I can prove that both of these guys are wrong and then after you know going through that fight they have the you know starkest change for peter's life where he's beaten and bloodied to death and conked out aunt may doesn't hear from him for two days goes over for a visit and sees him as spider-man and that conscious there as spider-man in that moment which was like the character had existed for 40 years and now you're finally giving that big reveal the one that they'd been dreading this show is brought to you by our Patreon. Go to patreon.com slash themarvelists. And on the $3 tier, you'll get access to episodes early and ad-free. The $5 tier gets you our two bonus shows. One, Fantastic Voyage, where we dissect and just talk about the 102 issues, one by one, although if it's a storyline more than one at a time, of Stan Lee and Jack Kirby's amazing, incredible, spectacular, invincible, and fantastic run of the Fantastic Four, the world's greatest comic magazine. And two, you haven't read that? A show dedicated to the comic books that I haven't read yet. Some Marvel, some DC, all fun. And on the $8 tier, pick a topic of your choosing, not a topping of your choice, or perhaps you can be a guest on The Marvelists. Above all else, we thank you for your continued support. And the most interesting thing about it, you know, as I'm going through the Clone Saga stuff, she did reveal, you know, right before she passed that she knew. But I feel like the way she had said it in those issues, it was very thinly veiled of what she knew. Like, she didn't specifically say flat out, I know you're Spider hyphen man. No, she didn't say any of that. So I kind of like how they left that open ended. And then eventually, you know, when all of this stuff happened in the Straczynski run, yeah, now she actually does know. And by the way, if you remember when that issue came out, they had to postpone the reaction because 9-11 happened. Of 9-11. Yeah, and 9-11, they, you had to do 
you had to do uh, Amazing Spider-Man 36. And, you know, I would have... I honestly would have liked to see them throw in a little more continuity into the 9-11 scene saying it's like, oh, Peter's been bloodied and broken. He's asleep. And so, like, you know, he misses 9-11 because he's like passed out or something like that. And it's like so he feels another layer of guilt not being able to do anything. But I think for the strength of the issue, it just needs to be focused as a 9-11 solo story and not tied in for that because it would it needed to be something for the world to see not something for the spider-man reader to see yeah and you know going back over you know you mentioned with the whole joe casada coming in and you know taking talent off of titles when you really think about it burn leaving the title because of how he left is why he's not still at marvel like he won't make his return and it's kind of a shame yeah you look at i, I know because he he does he does tease those like that X-Men graphic novel, it's always in the background of stuff. He's got it there. It's done. And I know that like Tom was it um CB Sabolsky has, you know, tried to make amends with him. You see them at conventions together and saying that, oh, he's gonna be on, you know, Marvel Comics one thousand or something like that. But it kind of just pans through. I mean, it's it's there, but as a kid who was reading the stuff that Byrne was doing in the in the late nineties, Spider-Man his you know, his amazing Spider-Man stuff and Spider-Man chapter one, it wasn't doing it for me. Yeah, 100%. Like, it's funny because as I'm going through this read through, I was going to put chapter one in there. And then I look at the reading order that, they, you know, I found online and chapter one isn't even in there at all. And I'm like, oh, well, I guess I'm not reading this. And, you know, I would yeah. hear things about how that story is told. And it's funny because Spider-Man is a story that, you know, for the most part, is timeless but you can't really weigh it down with uh dated references and you look at you know chapter one with referencing the movie titanic because you know that's what all the kids are going to be talking about in like five years from then yeah uh, it is it is a lot of stuff that um things do go through so like you know i i want spider-man to be timeless and there's a lot of runs that are timeless i think you know it's just the Straczynski age is just edging into the internet enough where it's semi-modern, but not quite modern. Uh, you know, you go back to Burn, it's still very, I mean, not Burn, uh, Stern, and it's uh, still very seated in 1980s, but they have 80s computers and stuff like that. And I think that's the good look that you have to keep yourself timeless, because when you look modern, you end up looking dated a few years later. And, you know, I have nothing but love for spider-man in the 2000s because uh, for me that was a golden age of spider-man for me it, it was the golden age on on amazing with straczynski and romita you had this long overarching story of the spider totem although you did not have the mainstay villains showing up because straczynski said he wanted to avoid them because they kind of just been done to death and formulaic patterns however if you wanted to get your fix of the villains then you could easily go over to what paul jenkins and humberto ramos were doing on spectacular spider-man and you'd have these incredible compelling stories of villains with you know complex character depths venom admitting that he has cancer and the symbiote was you know basically eating it to keep him alive that uh, the in the lizard story that jenkins did about how dr kurt connor's peter kind of figured out that he was actually in control 
of the lizard persona the entire time. There is no lizard persona. He kind of figures out what kind of like ravaging maniacal monster steals lab equipment. Wouldn't you rather just be eating people like, like stuff like that? You know, it's funny, by the way, because of that era of Spider-Man in the 2000s, mm-hmm. there's a lot of stuff that slips through the cracks too, like runs of the character that no one really talks about anymore. Yeah, and uh, like another one that I do want to talk about from that particular era, one of the other Golden Age books, Marvel Night Spider-Man by Mark Millar. That's an inter- I never hear people mention that. That's a they, inter- they should mention it. It's it's a perfect story. I mean, for me, it's like people like, oh, what's it about? Here's how it's called. Call it Spider-Man Hush. It's a villain gauntlet. Okay. It's like, how bad can you beat this guy down amid all the villain stuff? And I think it is a very incredibly fun story. It's um, it's Millar and Terry Dodson with, um, with some uh, one-off issues in there by Frank Cho. I think Terry Dodson is just such a fun Spider-Man artist, and he always just gets all the uh, all the details down. I, I love all the Spider-Man stuff that he does. And people say, well, you can't also love, yes, I love <laughs> Trouble. I absolutely 100% oh love God. Trouble by Mark Millar and Terry Dodson. People are like, how can you like that? It's so insulting to the characters. It's like, no, it's not. First off, it's an out of continuity story. People should realize that for the elements of what goes on. And I think Trouble is a great story because it has it reaffirms a belief that I have always held and people can't accept it. Aunt May is a hoe. I, th- I feel like the episode title for this should be, in fact, Aunt May is a hoe. She is. She gets around. I mean, people's like, oh, but she's loyal to Aunt May. But what about Nathan with the gambling addiction? What about J. Jonah Jameson's dad? Dr. Octopus, for God's sake. You know, I always hated Nathan. Nathan is one of those characters. Like, I, I remember when I'm reading through like about a year ago. I'm like, wow, what a sweet old man. And then he turns on a dime on Peter. And I'm just like, man, I can't wait for this guy to die. Yeah, Nathan Nathan was a jerk. Although I will forever and a day keep talking about all Aunt May's boyfriends and how she's a hoe. You will never hear me knock Aunt May and Jarvis. I thought they were the absolute best couple. See, I could get behind that. Yeah, and well, he probably did too. Um, yeah, but it is so sad at the tail end of the JMS run where Jarvis just had to see her after taking a gunshot and just watch her basically on her deathbed and, you know, giving up life. And he, he really grown to love her. And that is just, you know, just one of the, you know, great tragedies of Aunt May and Jarvis that, you know, that thing was ultimately taken off there. So, but. Now, in regards to another story during that time frame that I really love, I love the Spider-Man's Tangled Web series where you have so many different creative teams working on it. You know, of course, I'd be remiss if I don't mention the Darwin Cook stories where he, you know, he's involved, as well as the opening two issues with Garth Ennis. But for me, the go-to one that I absolutely love. Let me me see if we both have it in common. Flowers for Rhino. Damn it, you're good. (laughs) Flowers for Rhino is a masterpiece story. I love that story. I'm shocked more people don't talk about it. And you know, I'm hearing rumor in the window right now that in the upcoming, I think, Craven movie, we're going to be seeing good old PG, Paul Giamatti. He's going to be playing uh, Rhino again, reprising the role. And I kind of want to see his version of Rhino delve into Flowers for Rhino. Yeah, I, I 
there is actually an interesting story about how Paul Giamatti actually ended up getting that gig. Um, it's no secret that he actually is a very big comic book fan. Uh, TJ told me that he used to sell comics to uh, Paul Giamatti at St. Mark's Comics back in the day. But there was an appearance uh, that Paul Giamatti had, and I remember seeing it. It was on Conan O'Brien. He talked about his love for Spider-Man and how his favorite villain was the Rhino. And the producers at Sony actually saw that interview and then offered him the role of Rhino in the second Amazing Spider-Man film. And it's funny, too, because you look at Paul Giamatti and he does not look like what Rhino could be. But when you do the tweaking around in the film with how he looks in the movie, it makes perfect sense. Yeah. And so, you know, I, I like the techno rhino costume. I think it actually works a little better for the character because if you, there is, a, there is a whole lot of these things about superhero characters. When you take them and ground them in reality, it doesn't work out so well. So if you had this guy with like, uh, like just, uh, you know, rock skin, like meshed to him at all times, how do you go to the bathroom? Yeah. Yeah. It's like you do basically just, you know, be having diaper rash all day long and stuff like that. And you would overheat yourself. I mean, well, that's actually how Spider-Man beat Rhino on spectacular Spider-Man by overheating it because he, he, the, he, uh, the body just, the body suit just doesn't breathe at all. It's so weird because again, you know, you look at the Spider-Man rogue gallery and the one comment that I've heard over and over during the years is, his rogues gallery might actually surpass Batman and it's on. No, it absolutely what it 100% does surpass Batman. I think Spider-Man's villains are much more complex and much more interesting. And, you know, they, they can have the versatility. They can, you know, be power hitters. They can be grunts. They can be criminal geniuses. As you see the case for Rhino, he's, he becomes a criminal genius in flowers for Rhino. And again, I love that story so damn much. And I feel like they need to, uh, again, it's one of those, they really need to put more of a focus on because I feel like that would be the perfect story to make a movie out of. Why wouldn't you do that? Well, because it's a Sony Spider-Man villain movie. I don't really think they yeah. should be making movies of them to begin with. I am just... No, I have not seen Venom. I have not seen Carnage, despite my love for Carnage. I did not watch Morbius because I simply don't like the idea of spider-man villain movies without spider-man the funny so i've seen all of those venom kind of sucked and as i always bring up i saw that during new york comic-con weekend and i remember seeing that before i went to go see a star is born and i was thinking to myself you know i could be going to see a star is born right about now and i would prefer to see that right about now and you know i'm sitting in the theater movie ends and everybody in the theater is giving Venom a standing ovation. And I'm thinking Why? to myself, we watched the same movie, right? Because I'm sitting here and I'm thinking to myself, well, that was a comic book movie and they had people in it. Yeah, I mean, I I don't want to watch it. It's just like, it for me, it looks like the best superhero movie of 1997. I yeah. would rather not watch these movies than have bad opinions of them see i like the carnage movie i feel like you know they took everything about the movie that worked the first time and you know amped it up to 11 but on the flip side it's still not great 
it's an average like that's an average movie you know and with morbius as again as i always lovingly bring up there's a scene in the movie morbius where jared leto shows up in a prison uniform for no reason except when i say no reason it means i fell asleep in the theater woke up and then he was in wearing a prison jumpsuit so okay so you also had eternal syndrome oh oh my god oh I didn't fall asleep during, during Eternals. I fell asleep during Aquaman during the big fight with Black Manta. But it's funny with Eternals. It's so bland and unrememberable. Or unmemorable. Like, I don't really remember much about that movie. I just remember, you know, uh, Icarus pieces out at the very end. Or no, Kingu pieces out at the very end. And then Icarus flies into the sun on wings of wax. Get it? Yeah, but you know, I in in its defense, I will say that Eternals is the perfect comic adaptation. It's just as boring as the comic. See, I like the Kirby run. Like there is something charming about it, but I remember when Rob Liefeld was going on on his podcast talking about uh you guys, Eternals is going to be coming out. And I can't wait to be like Jack Kirby. Jack Kirby. No, it wasn't. It was literally trying to be like, "Hey, all the goth girls really love Neil Gaiman stuff." And Neil Gaiman is the popular writer right now. Let's have it be this. It's going to be that. But they, they tried to make it like Neil Gaiman's Eternals, which really wasn't all that either. The, the simple thing is like they deprived themselves of the opportunity to have a, you know, a very bright, colorful, very Kirby-ish movie. You could have at least made it look good instead of doing the exact opposite of what the, of what the comic did and you know, turning it to these, just, these Zack Snyder Justice League colors. I was going to say it definitely it's the most uh Snyderverse style movie of the MCU and it kind of bums me out because as a big Kirby fan like I love Kirby stuff I love the bombacity of it I love that element of it's what comics are supposed to be and when you look at the Eternals movie it's so bland and uneventful it 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 really is, but um, the thing there is, what happens is, I, I, for me, when you talk, you know, I'll talk Kirby for days with people. So like, okay, what's your favorite Kirby comic? And I'm like, I'm not really a big Kirby fan. They're like, no, no, no. It's like, it's like, guys, I'll name off about a dozen other Silver Age artists before I get to Kirby. I think Jack Kirby, the man is far more interesting than Jack Kirby's comics. And you know, I highly recommend, you know, just books like Kirby King of Comics. And if you just want something to read, uh, Tom Scioli's uh, Jack Kirby uh, biography graphic novel was you know, really entertaining as well. There's some people that took up some issues there, but it's just, that one was kind of compressed and made for library. So you couldn't fit everything of Kirby's life in there. His life was too large. But when it comes to comics by Kirby, I don't really like the high concept ones. And so like stuff like Eternals and Fourth World, they really do not click with me. I love it when Kirby does dumb fun stuff. So I'm talking stuff like Devil Dinosaur and Omac and Kamandi. That's where Kirby that's where Kirby really shines for me because he can have fun with it. I personally one of my favorite go-tos with him is his return to Captain America in the 1970s. Like the Mad Bomb story is so bizarre and it works so well. And then, you know, you'll read the letters pages of those issues and he's getting torn to shreds by the fans. I, I can't say I'm a big fan of that particular run. I tried, but didn't 
click for me. Although I will say Mark Russell did a really good Marvel snapshot story that actually does take place during uh, during Mad Bomb. And um, I really, really enjoyed it. So I think Kirby in itself, it, you know, he is a creator who uh, he is, his strength is character creation and world building. But ultimately, I think that other people take those uh those ideas and run them better so like you know there's the john burns the simonsons the darwin cooks like those people are the ones that really uh that really really come through on that so that's where i i really enjoy it it's funny you mention uh mark russell i love russell stuff and i've gone on record to the man himself and i point blank said he is the uh he is the second coming of steve gerber like a lot of his you know biting satire feels like something Steve Gerber would have written, you know, and he's his own person too. So he's not quite Steve Gerber, but there's a lot of the Gerber DNA in him. Yeah. And I, I do love his writings a lot. And it's just like, you know, the Eisner voting uh, like thing has come up and it's like, I need to get uh, on top of my Eisner reasoning because like every time, like, you know, I want to be the well-educated, well-informed, well-read guy. I've read a lot of this stuff, but not all of it. I tried to read every single Eisner book on the list last year. And by the time I got done, it's like, oh, voting is over. It's like, what? Yeah, it's just like, it's in, so because I know it goes by in the blink of an eye. So I do need to just do some quick reading, get the stuff in and make sure it's all set in stone. But I I, I did pick up the hardcover of uh, Superman Space Age by by uh, by Mark Russell and Mike Allred. And I'm looking forward to reading that. I haven't, I just wanted to wait till that got a proper collected edition. It's funny uh, with Allred. I love Allred's work and I feel like he's slowly starting to get his recognition in the comic industry and in, even in, you know, mainstream pop culture in general, because he, he does stuff that is so far out there and also just has such a gorgeous looking style to it. Like when you really think about it, like, did you ever expect to see an adaptation of Mike Allred stuff that wasn't, you know, Madman? we got I zombie. I never expected that. Yeah, I Zombie is, you know, a trip in itself too. It's a very fun book. I, I've actually never watched the TV show. I had the chance to uh, talk to Chris Roberson and meet him at the, at the Seattle Comic Con a couple of months ago, and that was a very fun time meeting him. I got him to sign my I Zombie omnibus, and I had to make sure I bought that at my comic store the day before leaving to Seattle. And I, I talked with him about it. it's like you know because I always like to you know get the input. As I said, having never seen the TV show, how do you feel about its adaptation from the uh, from the comic? He says, I love them both. For me, they feel like twins raised in two different households. And I think that's a good way of putting it. So it's like, you know, it's like, you know, you're complimenting the work and it's like, you know, one for this audience, one for that audience. But for me, I'm, you know, I'm kind of more the comic book purist of things. So it's like, I like the comic source material, like, and I'm, and that's going to be the thing I gravitate to. I don't make a whole lot of time to watch TV because, you know, I'm the big comic nerd. Right. And the funniest thing is in regards to a lot of shows for myself, like it, there's so much that you have to watch nowadays and, you know, I'm very lucky that we as podcasters didn't start our show specifically about DC because I could only imagine how much of like the Arrowverse stuff we would have had to have done every week, you know? And it's like, I'm dreading coming up now. They announced that Echo is going to be uh, one whole season dropped on one day. And it's like, uh, 
you know the truth of the matter is like i i really don't even watch a whole lot of marvel tv shows anymore i think i made it like three episodes into she hulk and i kind of gave up i didn't watch moon knight i didn't watch hawkeye uh, marvel movies for me i watch them once and then i move on it's like you know i I'm not really feeling it with so many of them. I really did like Guardians of the Galaxy 3. I think that was a, a big return to force. But like, you know, I think it's just kind of just been for me, you know, I, I, I was when you getting Marvel, I was getting Marvel movie burnout, like, you know, five or six years ago. I mean, it's like, you know, it's, it's just not, it's, it's nothing new for me because like, I've seen a lot of these stories before. There are some winners among the, among the batches, but honestly, there's so many, comics that i have that i've never read that i need to give the time for and i mean you know just if you have the source material on these other things i mean you know marvel movie marvel movies and tv shows will always be there for you but you know you can just like you know, check the comics read something old read something new there's so much out there in the publishing world and people are like well you're just a gatekeeper like no i'm not a gatekeeper i'm trying to get people to read these comics i'm trying to get people in comic stores and do these stuff and do their reading it's like yo people check it out there's better versions of these stories in these comics no i don't want to do it and that's just you know kind of how uh kind of how the world is lately it's, it's funny because when i got back into comics uh you know the new 52 was about to start and in regards to that you know, I came in at the right time because everything was like kind of starting fresh. So like for a newbie like me, yes, I had, you know, the backlog of everything behind me. I also had everything in the future of what was to come. And it makes me laugh. There is that level of gatekeeping, though, in regards to you can't like this unless it's this. Like I've noticed that like in the uh, comic community and like, I'm sorry, but I do feel like reboots every once in a while are needed because if i see you know a comic and like you'll hear todd mcfarlane go on saying like oh bud you look at spawn spawn is like number 355 bud it's like okay cool that that series lasted that long but i'm gonna have to read a crap load of stuff before i can really understand what the hell's going on and i kind of like that element of you know a fresh restart yeah, I mean, I just don't think they should be done so often. Uh, I mean, for me, I was there with the first Spider-Man reboot in October of 1998. And you are going to keep getting reading your Spider-Man stuff after Clone Saga, and you're going to get to Spider-Man, the final chapter. And then after that, it's going to go into... Um, it's going to end the Spider-Man brain trust, go into the John Byrne and Howard Mackey stories of the late 1990s, uh, if only if into the late nineties you go, only pain will you find. It's the funniest thing is, other than Burn being on the title, I don't remember much about that era. Like there, no. there, there really isn't a whole lot to remember. So Spider Man, the main story ends with the gathering of five, where five artifacts are brought together, uh, bestowing each user um, with a special ability. One is strength, one is power, one is intelligence, and those are the positive ones. And then there's um, madness, and then there's death, the bad ones. And it's uh, J. Jonah Jameson's niece, Norman Osborn, Madam Webb, and um, two other guys who I completely forgot about. They may have just been random millionaires who had the pieces in their possession. And um, yeah, like Madam Web falls over and she's like, Oh, Madam Web got death. J. Jonah Jameson's niece has tingly fingers, tingling in her um in her uh 
in her hands and it's just like oh what's this it's like oh i'm guessing you probably have you know intelligence it's probably just power overpowering your body and then this other guy is just like ah, brain on fire aha he got madness he got madness and then osborne he just felt things going through him it's like aha i got the power i got the power i'll finally destroy spider-man and of course unbeknownst to osborne the guy who you thought all had madness. No, he his brain was just literally just being overwhelmed with intelligence, and he was having all that time to uh, process all the new things there before his brain stopped being on fire. But Osborne brought himself into madness. There's literally the third to last issue of Gathering of Five is just basically Osborne having a dream that he kills Spider-Man, and then by issue four, it just shows that Spider-Man actually beat him. Doesn't exactly show how. And Spider-Man rescues Aunt May, who's alive. That's never really been addressed to this day. It's a story I would like to um, address. How did Norman Osborn fake Aunt May's death back in 1995? It's that's never been addressed. That is a story that she just she was just you know brought back. Norman Osborn had you know hired a woman to just basically take the fall. Didn't know if it was a clone or something like that, but it was there, and all the stuff was done and. Yeah, so, you know, so maybe some questions are better left unanswered, but it's something in the back of my mind. It's funny because, you know, as I'm reading through the Clone Saga, I haven't gotten to the return of Aunt May, and it is one of those things where I'm thinking to myself, when is the host showing up again? Yeah, she doesn't show up until the uh, tail end of 1998. Holy shit, are you serious? Yeah. Wow, they kept her dead for a while. Good, good for yeah, that. she she had a good she she had a good three years before she was brought back three four years so, and it's funny too because you know as of this recording um, do you are you aware of the spoiler pertaining to Spider Man twenty six? I would rather not know it. I would rather just go in for myself. The truth oh, of the no matter no. is, yeah, the truth of the matter is, I am going in for um, this thing. And like, I will read it for myself and. You know, I, I I came back to Amazing Spider-Man um, because of John Romita Jr. Ultimately, the my I spoke fondly of my love for Straczynski's run on Spider-Man, so you can imagine my feelings towards certain events in late 2007. Yeah, we need. I one. won't. Okay. Yeah, I, I won't get into details there, but it made me stop reading Spider-Man after 15 years of, you know, it hurt to not read Spider-Man. It just, but it just hurt more to read Spider-Man. And I, you know, gravitated away from the character for a long while. And then I didn't read Spider-Man for the longest time. And then when I saw the creative team of Ryan Otley and Nick Spencer coming on board in 2018, after you know Dan Slott on the book for 10 years and it's like that sounds like a stellar lineup you know what I, I think I might be interested in reading that and I read that first issue of Otley and and Spencer's Spider-Man and when I got to the final page I had the biggest smile on my face and I said you know what I want to read more yeah I want to read more and if I were to give a placement for Nick Spencer and Ryan Otley's Spider-Man, I would call it the, my number two favorite Spider-Man run. It almost 
took number one. It almost took number one. I wish you get the hint that he wanted to stick the landing, but maybe it was Marvel's editorial that wouldn't let him stick the landing on certain things that happened at the end. But if he was able to have to stick, if Spencer was able to stick the landing at the end, I would have called it the greatest Spider-Man run of all time. Well, what gets me about that era is, you know, it kind of led to uh, Nick Spencer, like leaving, you know, being on the internet and, I, I think it was either that or the Captain America run where the toxicity of fandom rears its ugly head. And, you know, I'll try and talk about it as spoiler free as humanly possible. But, you know, like with the big reveal of 26, it's like the whole Internet is very vocal and there's good reasons yeah. why I understand. Yeah, there, there's always going to be reasons why. But like, I mean, I I'll see it for myself next week. But the, yeah. the truth of the yeah, the truth of the matter is, I, you know, I loved Nick Spencer, Nick Spencer's run. I mean, the first half you were blessed with Ryan Otley art, and then you get, um, you know, some of the darker stories are done by Umberto Ramos, and they're you know beautiful as well too. And then for the second half, you know, it's a bummer that Ryan Otley leaves, but Patrick Gleason really grows on you as an artist, and you have Mark Bagley coming in to you know always the you know, solid Spider-Man artist that he's been over the past 30 years. And I, I I loved Spencer's run on Spider-Man so much because he did so much to fix the problems of Spider-Man. He fixed so many problems of Spider-Man that persisted. And it's just, he doesn't get enough credit for what he did. He, he The man is owed a debt of gratitude. I mean, I may not have been the biggest fan of the world of Dan Slott's Spider-Man run. I think it may have gone on for a long time and maybe longer than it needed to be in some parts but the fact that he in the first issue of his run he acknowledges the events of what happened and saying okay peter you're back at school wait what's this your brain wasn't yours at the time guess we have to take away your doctor title guess we have to take away parker industries take we have to take back this it acknowledges the stuff that happened it's not disrespectful to it it acknowledges it it blatantly straight up says okay this happened but now you know, you kind of cheated to make that happen. So, bam, we're back to square one. Yeah, and I, and they just, I love that, and, and it's great because now we're just at the Peter Parker where he's at the you know point where he should be, the twenty-seven-year-old like you know down on his luck, you know going back to college, Peter Parker. They they put him back to square one. And you know what also gets me is, uh, you know, to be honest, I for the most part I do love you know, a good majority of the Dan Slott run. And, you know, that I think it's partially because of the fact of when I came back into comics, it was during that time frame. And, you know, Spider Island might be one of my personal favorite arcs of all time. Like there's just something about, you know, again, that was my first. I I will, I will say I did enjoy superior Spider-Man, even though I knew how it was. Yes. Even though I knew how it was going to end, I think they dropped the big reveal a little too uh, quickly on it. Um, to saying that he was still, you know, in there. Yeah, we should know that Peter's still in there. But I, I had a feeling that I, I knew full well that it was going to turn out to be a pissing match between Doc Ock and Green Goblin, and that Doc Ock knew he couldn't win, so he would have to, you know, give up control to Peter. And you know, I was right, but I think it was actually a good ride uh, for what it was. But then it's like you have Tillman, so many universe shakeups within one year. You have two new Amazing Spider-Man number ones and. I think like stuff like Silk is just a little too far reaching. I mean, like people don't go 
dig back into the issues of the origin issues just like leave it alone i mean did you not learn anything from deadly genesis very fair and it's again it's also funny for me because in regards to you know the nick spencer run like i really got to get back into reading that eventually like realistically i will read it but it's probably going to be when i get into my reading order maybe i'll be reading that within the next three years Uh, i'm trying to see like you know where did you leave off on the nick spencer run not too far in i know that i I could look on my ipad but i'm realizing it's probably not going to say yeah i mean did you ever make it to the hunted saga yes uh you did make it to hunted yes i did make it to hunted let me okay and i i i you know, without going further into details there, I think Hunted is just a masterpiece story because I will straight up say it, I was not comfortable with the resurrection of Craven when Joe Kelly and uh, and Phil Jimenez brought him back in that in that story arc. I, I didn't like the idea of bringing back Craven because Craven's Last Hunt is such a monumentally important story. It is such a strong and powerful story that resonates the character and gives Craven a proper send-off. And I think bringing him back from the dead was kind of just a little demeaning to the character. But the fact that Craven decided to clone himself and that his, you know, have several clones, one of his son clones decides to just like kill all the other brothers and becomes like, you know, the next heir to the Craven throne. But Craven I mean, real Craven himself at the end of Hunted realizes that, you know, after putting together this extravagant hunt for all these billionaires against these, these super, these animal supervillains, he realizes that, you know, okay, the jig is up. There's only one thing for me to do. And then when, you know, Craven's son goes out and I loved Craven's son in that tiger costume. I thought it was even cooler than the lion costume. The lion costume may be cool, but the tiger Craven costume was even cooler. And then when Craven's son encounters, you know, black costume Spider Man out there, goes, stabs him, kills him, and all this, and then suddenly sees Spider Man just web slinging overhead. It well, one, made one things thing. come full, it made oh, things come full circle. Craven now, killed Craven because that was the destined to. He was he was destined to kill himself. So technically, Craven killed himself, and but Craven's son ascends to the main throne of becoming Craven. So it sets things right with Craven dead, and now we just have the clone of Craven existing as Craven. So it sets things right. I like that, and it's again, it's very you know, it's very much uh, the pathos of it all, you know, and. Man, it's again, there's something special about Spider-Man where you can have so many different runs of this character. And regardless of anything, there is something of importance to each one, you know, and I don't know, you know, I've I've attempted to read some of the current run. I'll flip through the, you know, the issues because of the uh, John Romita Jr. art. But for the most part, like. Has something truly of substance happened in the title yet that, you know, is like one of those like each uh, something. My, my policy for new comics is I typically give them three issues to get rolling the first three issues of this particular run on Amazing Spider-Man. I came back to the book because of Ramita. Not a whole lot of stuff really happened, but I said, let me give it one more. And then I gave it a fourth issue and that 
transcended into this tombstone story that was actually incredibly well-written crime fiction and had this like inc- this this really awesome twist and i loved it i thought it was just so awesome what happened there that it made it compelled me to read more but as i continued to read more it came out of stuff like okay i'll just let my issues pile up for a while and then i'll just read six at once it wasn't me reading them the moment they came out and then it gets into stuff like dark web and after nick spencer's run when i heard that they're bringing back ben riley i said okay i'll give it a chance and i gave it three issues i i don't know i feel like they i'm a guy that just was very very deep into ben riley and i i I know the character inside and out and the way that he was acting was not ben riley and i just couldn't bear to see ben out of character and now he's chasm i don't know what chasm is i don't know why they named him that it's it's funny because you know in regards to this title like again with the zeb wells stuff going on i feel like we're you know the the run clearly is on the way to finishing i feel like it is you know it's going to wrap up very soon and we're going to have a new uh creative team involved you know because to be completely honest does a uh, marvel book ever last uh that long you know well they have legacy numbers and stuff like that but like you know it's just uh you know you do get some fresh number ones every now and then just to you know to spike things up not to spice things up but to spike things up just number ones do give rate and do give increases but the most recent issue of amazing spider-man i actually did like it it was a mary jane story and i thought it was just a you know beautifully done story that actually shows how strong mary jane can be but for the most part i'm not really liking the depiction of peter parker in the current amazing spider-man stuff it's like why am i enjoying norman osborn more as a character than i am with peter that's the kind of sense i'm getting so you're not a big fan of uh everyone's favorite character find of 2022 paul um yeah he's he's okay you know he's just you know your new guy but you know he's a guy but you know she likes him it's like okay it's like you know once again i i know the whole thing of seeing an old gal pal with someone new it's just like oh well, I can see what you see in him, but, you know, you know, there's that. So it, it, at least, you know, the, the the story has been explained. And so I think that had a better, Mary Jane had a better explanation of her behavior than Peter did when it came to this. And I think it's, it's more su- suited for her. And it's funny, too, because I feel like, you know, going over to Mary Jane mentioning, you know, just now, you know, people that have their favorite uh, love interests of uh, Peter Parker, it really depends on what your introduction to Spider-Man is in a lot of ways, because obviously for you, uh, the animated series was not your introduction, but you know, when you started reading the character, Mary Jane was the love interest. Yeah. Peter was married when I started, uh, when I started reading Spider-Man comics. So it's like, you know, she was just a girl that was there. It's like, you know, I was, you know, I was used to her. And it's, it's funny because, you know, a friend of the show, Daiko of uh, A Stark Contrast, she's the biggest Gwen Stacy fan. So, you know, there's, you have your choice. Like, you're either Team Gwen or you're Team MJ. 
Yeah, and I don't understand like people of our generation being Gwenophiles. Like Gwen was dead for twenty years when I started reading Spider Man. Like, how do you have that attachment to her? I feel like it's through the uh, reprints, to be honest. Like I feel like, and it's also it's that sad element of what could have been, you know, because even when he, you know, waxes poetically about her, you still see that love that he had, you know, ever so evident in Spider-Man blue, which I'll be completely honest is the greatest Spider-Man story of all time. And that's, um, I will agree to disagree. I will call Spider-Man blue, the second best limited series, Spider-Man story of all time. And what do I think is the greatest Spider-Man limited series ever? Lethal Foes of Spider-Man. Um, well, that's a, as I have a fondness for that one as well, but no, it's not. Spider-Man Life Story by Chip Zdarsky and Mark Bagley. Isn't it funny how a guy who didn't really have a lot to do with Spider-Man became one of the most synonymous Spider-Man writers of the last 20 years? Yeah, and the, the truth of the matter is, you know, I've not read his, Chip Zdarsky's, run on spectacular spider-man yet it's coming out in an omnibus i'll pick it up i will read it but i think chip zadarsky is the best writer working in comics right now my favorite book well when it does come out it's only had four issues so far is public domain and i'm happy to see that public domain got an eisner nomination for best new series i think it's a beautiful well done wonderful great critique of the comic book industry that is depressing makes you angry but it's still very heartwarming at the same time and in the end we want to feel something when we're reading comics um but i will say this you know for me i'd always had the idea of writing a spider-man story and i knew how i wanted to write a story back in the day i wanted to do like you know a story that focused on the 60s with sort of like a ditko-y looking artist maybe someone like marcos martin then you get into like a 70s era with someone like a like ross andrew type looking artist or gil kane-ish or something and then into the 80s i wanted to like do a spider-man story that you know focuses on that but he would age in real time and then you get to like you know just ramita Junior and then Bagley would do the 90s chapter and then the 2000s it would be like Terry Dodson and then like it would kind of go there it wouldn't go to the 2010s but the idea that I had was done by Chip Zdarsky and he did it so much better than I could have ever done it Spider-Man life story is the best most respectful look at Spider-Man history showing the history while crafting a story of its own it's the absolute best story and at the Eisner Awards in 2019, um, after Chip Zdarsky won for best single issue uh, with uh, his for his issue on S Spectacular Spider-Man, uh, we were listening to the piano play and we were slow dancing together. This is a thing that happens. I slow dance with Chip Zdarsky at the Eisner Awards. We're both dressed in our suits and we're as slow one. dancing together, as one does. And we're slow dancing. And I said, you know what? That is the only the second time that a Spider-Man title has ever won an Eisner Award. He says, what? Really? Wow. What was the first? I said, Spider-Man Coming Home won for Best Serialized Story in 2002 by J. Michael Straczynski and uh, John Romita Jr. actually won an Eisner Award. That is the first time that Spider-Man actually won an Eisner Award. And I told him I would like to preemptively congratulate you next year because I know that Spider-Man Life Story is going to win the Eisner Award for Best Limited Series. And he said, well, I appreciate that. It was, and we ended our dance and, you know, <laughs> held a nice slow movement as the song ended. But sadly, 
Spider-Man Life Story was not nominated for an Eisner the next year, despite my absolute love for it. But if you've not read Spider-Man Life Story, I th- I think it's better than Spider-Man Blue. I See, I got to revisit it because, to be honest, that era of Marvel in terms of uh, miniseries and stuff like that, uh, 2018 to about 2021 is like some of the most insane actually no 2022 is like an era of like some of the most insanely great miniseries from marvel like you look at you know you look at that one you also look at the beta ray bill by daniel warren johnson which is a masterpiece itself uh silver surfer black by donny cates and trad moore who i used to absolutely hate trad moore but that's a story for another day but um you know, you look at that era of like these random creative teams doing these stories and limited series somehow finding a way to surpass the regular ongoings. Actually, no, I, I, I kind of just it's 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 well, it's it's agree to disagree because I think in that particular era we had entered another golden age of Spider-Man. I was I, I couldn't get enough Spider-Man in that particular age. You know, when I talked about. Spider, my first golden age of Spider-Man in the 2000s, where you had Straczynski on Amazing Spider-Man, you had Mark Millar on uh, Marvel Knight Spider-Man, you had Paul Jenkins on Spectacular Spider-Man, and if that wasn't your cup of tea, you said, well, I want to go back to a teacher. Well, cool, cool, you have Bendis on on Ultimate Spider-Man with Mark Bagley, but, you know, it's like you you couldn't pick up bad Spider-Man stories at the time, and then, you know, a couple of years ago, the 2018 era, we, we got that again, and it was so refreshing and so nice because I couldn't get enough of what Nick Spencer was doing on Amazing Spider-Man with Ryan Otley and Umberto Ramos. And then we also had Spider-Man Life Story coming up as a limited series that Chip Zdarsky was, like I said, giving the most respectful, entertaining look of Spider-Man history ever. And what he told me when I complimented his 90s issue, and I said, because I love clones. He says, oh, thank God. They told me not to do clones. I said, well, what else are you going to do in the 90s? You're going to do uh, the late 90s stuff, the Howard Mackey and John Byrne stuff that nobody talks about, or the uh, early 90s Todd McFarlane stuff that uh, no one can remember the plot of. Oof. I think people remember in the 90s are clones. You remember the art. You don't remember the you don't remember the plots of that stuff. But the other story that was happening very much in this golden era of Spider-Man in the late teens Friendly Neighborhood Spider-Man by Tom Taylor, but what we should really call it, Friendly Neighborhood Aunt May. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I'm I'm genuinely shocked they have not given Aunt May a title yet. I th- Wasn't there like a rumor they were going to do something recently? I don't know. It's always this thing that it's just like, they, it's like, oh, come on. She, she is a compelling character, but like Friendly Neighborhood spider-man was an aunt may story and getting the chance to talk with tom taylor at like you know the eisner awards and stuff like that he tells you that it's like the whole personal story is his mother and sister both had breast cancer he knows the whole traumatic situation of having to endure through all that and then it's like you see that on in aunt may's story as she has to deal with this stuff where she has to deal with um you know helping to you know put keeping keep you afloat a soup kitchen and like you know in the face of mayor wilson fisk who she knows is a you know is a serious criminal and you get these kind of weird 
Doctor Who plots thrown in there just to spice things up. But I, I loved Friendly Neighborhood Spider-Man. It was, it was a great Aunt May story. And you also mentioned Aunt May with the uh, soup kitchen. I would be remiss if I don't talk about it, but what do you think about the uh, PS4 Spider-Man? Never played it. Really? Never played it. See, I'm one of those, you know, Christopher Daniel Barnes is always going to be one of my personal favorite Spider-Man, Spider-Mans, as uh, Yuri Lowenthal has uh, coined the term. But Yuri is like, for me, might very well be my personal favorite Spider-Man because, you know, kind of like how everyone fawns over Charlie Cox's Daredevil, you spend so much time with that uh, that portrayal that it becomes, you know, what you love about the character. And I logged in so many hours of that game, got to know the character of Peter Parker, Peter Parker slash Spider-Man. And it, you know, it's one of those like, the story works. It just absolutely works. And, you know, I always bring this up on the show, but when we had, we've had Yuri on the show multiple times now and, you know, fingers crossed, we're going to be setting something up in time for Spider-Man two this fall on PS five. But, you know, we had him on and like, I would correspond with him via email and you read his emails and you hear it in Peter Parker's voice because he has like become the character. Like, when he plays Peter Parker in the game, it's just himself. And I kind of love, you know, like, like I said, I'll read an email and I'm just like, Spider-Man's emailing me right now. I can't believe it. It's so cool. Well, that is really nice to see, but it's like, you know, I don't really do a whole lot of gaming. It's just like, I mean, I have a switch and I have a lot of games that I never play for it. I, I, I never had a PS4. Oh, you should, you should, you should get one. You should get one. I'm gonna I'm gonna encourage I, you. To... I, I I know they have it for PC now, but I doubt my laptop could run it. It's just like it's just a Lenovo laptop from three years ago. It doesn't have the capabilities, man. Or it's just like it, it's you know, I I know it needs some kind of like high powered desktop with a lot of graphic resolution to run. You need you need more megabits. Put put in all of the megabits, the megabits, the gigabits, and so forth. But I, I would say, you know, even just watch the uh, clips on YouTube of the game, like, you know, uh, Let's Plays and whatnot. Like, there's just something very special about that uh, personification of the character. And, you know, it, it is a hoot, you know? Hoot, eh? So I think this is going to wrap this episode up for today. It's it's a bit of a long one, but again, the free flow and conversations are always the best ones. So we hope you enjoyed this episode of The Marvelists. Eddie Wilson and I, from Simon at the Coffee Bean. And I've I've enjoyed being here too. Thank you. Absolutely. Matt, thank you. And it's been it's been a pleasure. And obviously, goes without saying, you have an open invite to return anytime you would like. Yes, invite. <gasps> Wonderful. And thank you so much for having me, Peter. I really do appreciate it. Absolutely. Again, it's been a long time in the making. And to be honest, like I, I wanted to get you on even for like one of the the Disney plus ones or like, you know, to promote the uh, San Diego comic fest, like something, because, you know, I've, again, I've known you for a number of years and like your love of these characters shines. Oh, so bright. And, you know, personally, I'm a big fan of what you do over on TikTok on the uh, San Diego comic fests, uh, TikTok page with the trivia for every day. And yeah, I, I should yeah. get back on that. I haven't done that in over a year. It was so much fun, and like there I know, and I got I got ideas. There, it's fun. But before we go, how can people get a hold of you on them? Their social medias. 
Uh, you can just uh, find me on Facebook at Matt Dunford. Um, I'm always there. Just uh, uh, Instagram at Matt Dunford, M-A-T-T-D-U-N-F-O-R-D. You know, you can follow San Diego Comic Fest on Facebook and also on TikTok. Uh, SD Comic Fest on Instagram. Um, you might be hearing something very soon about that convention, but I uh, can't say just yet. Nudge, nudge, wink, wink. But uh, stay tuned you know i'm very easy to find or you can just check catch me around any convention or geeky event around southern california i'm easy to find very cool for the marvelists i'm peter melnick and i'm matt dunford excelsior true believers enough said mustache mustache mustache